it's my favorite part of the business model, Edco. <laughs> we and this is the part people can hardly believe. They're like, wait, what? I don't have to pay anything? No. Our clients that buy real estate through Maverick pay us no money ever. Okay. We give them free education, information, personalized consultation, all this kind of stuff, right? We support them through the process. We connect them with the resources for getting mortgages or getting, you know, uh, setting up an entity, right? To hold their property in and getting all this stuff we provide them and they pay us nothing. We don't have to charge them anything. I don't have to sell anything to people, which I love. What's up, you guys? My name is Mick Krashovsky, and welcome to episode 110 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Matt Bowles, the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group and the host of the Maverick Show podcast. After getting fired out of the blue in 2007, Matt decided to start his own business to take control of his future and create more security for himself. He turned to real estate investing, which he had been doing for several years as a side hustle of sorts while working his 9-to-5 job, and so Maverick Investor Group was born. At Maverick, Matt and his partners help investors find turnkey properties in the best markets around the U.S., And unlike most companies in the real estate space, Maverick has been remote from the very beginning, allowing Matt to travel to more than 65 countries and have some incredible experiences like travel across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railway. And in this episode, you will learn why Matt decided to create a real estate investment company as opposed to another type of business that is more remote-friendly why more digital nomads should invest in real estate, the five profit sources real estate investment provides you with, and how building Maverick as a remote-first company has given Matt and his partners an unfair advantage over the competition. But before we jump into this very exciting and informative episode, I would love to hear what you think about this podcast. I've made it very easy for you to leave a review. All you have to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are still a key statistic that Apple and Spotify look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So if you do decide to head on over and leave a review, thank you so much in advance. It seriously makes my day every time I see a new review and hear what you think about this podcast. So I really, really appreciate it. If you want to check out the full show notes and a list of resources that we mentioned on this episode, of which there were several, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 110. That's episode all spelled out, followed by the number 110. Or from now on, you'll also be able to find all of the topics that we discuss and all of the resources 
most likely in your favorite podcasting app. So if you just scroll down wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to see it in the notes, depending on how the podcasting app displays it. However, most of them should be able to display that information right here in uh, the show notes. So Without further ado, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I love making this podcast, and I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this interview and enjoy. All right, Matt, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? So good to be here, brother. Doing great. I am uh, super excited to talk to you. Like I was saying right before we hit record, uh, I've come across you and your podcast uh, before, and I'm super excited to sit down and chat with you and find out more about you and your business, because I think you have a really, really cool business. Uh, so yeah, thanks for coming on. Man, I think your show is fantastic. I think you're doing great stuff, and uh, the uh, privilege is all mine to be here, man. Uh, well, thank you so much for saying that. Well, man, I want to get started with... Um, so I... When I was doing research on you, I heard that you have been to over 50 countries, uh, which is even for me, when people hear how many countries I've been to, they think it's a lot. But for me, 50 is like a lot, a lot. So uh, how did that like, wh where did the travel bug bite you? Like when, like, why do you travel so much? You know, like what got you started on that path? Yeah. So there were probably different waves or things that I could trace it back to I me. Mean, the first thing is that I really didn't meaningfully leave the country growing up at all. I mean, I think we went on like one family vacation to a Caribbean island and my dad once took me to London for like a weekend. And then I like, I went to school in high school in Buffalo. So like we went over the border into Canada. Right. So like I had like virtually no international travel experience, certainly for any length of time before college. And then in college, I was able to study abroad. And I studied abroad in Ireland for a year. I lived in Dublin. I went to Trinity College. And I was on my own as an adult in a foreign country for an extended period. My roommate and I took the winter break that we could get for a month. And we got a Euro rail pass. And we went all through Europe on the Euro rail. And it was just like this euphorically amazing travel experience, you know, as a college student kind of backpacking through Europe, right? So that I would say really lit, um, lit a fire, right? But like, wow, like this is exhilarating and amazing and extreme. You're just learning things and you're learning about art and you're learning about culture and you're interacting with people and you're trying to get by on different languages and different countries and figuring out how to communicate with people. I mean, it was just the whole initial sort of experience of that is just, you know, an incredible one. So, I mean, I encourage every single human being that is able to study abroad to do it. And a lot of times you can do it a lot less expensively or easier than you think. So really looking into that that and figuring out how to do it, I think is a great start for people. But, you know, then for me, I ended up coming back to the U.S. Now, I also studied my master's degree as an in international peace and conflict resolution. So I've also spent time in conflict regions like the north of Ireland and Palestine and Chiapas, Mexico and places like that doing activist solidarity work um, with different oppressed struggles and all that kind of stuff in that in that sort of context. And so I did some traveling in that context, uh, did my master's degree in Washington, DC. And then after that, though, I worked in the nonprofit advocacy space for many years, my entire professional career was in the nonprofit advocacy space. And then for me, what and that was all based in the US, so it was all um, domestic stuff, I was doing organizing work around civil liberties, human mm -hmm. rights, that kind of stuff, but it was, it was domestically based. So I wasn't actually doing a lot of traveling for a number of years of my life. 
And then what happened was there was a change in management. And long story short, one day I walk into work and I get fired from my job unexpectedly, right? I mean, just like literally walked in and then- And you were 30 at the point, right? 30 years old. Yeah. I'd worked my entire professional career, all this. And then 30 years old, I I walk into my work one day and I get fired from my job. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, now what do I do? And what I decided on that day, I literally remember this now. I'm in, the, I mean, cause that's like your head is spinning, right? You're like, wait, what? Like I got fired in one day and now my whole life like plans and this, and I was going to, you know, everything is changes. And so I'm like, okay, this is literally a, I'm taking this as a sign as a, you know, kick in the pants that I need to really rethink my life and my, and my trajectory at this point of what do I really want to do? And on that day I decided I am not going to work for anybody else ever again, either in the corporate world or the nonprofit world or anything else, right? If I have a supervisor, I have a boss, I work for an organization, this can happen again, right? I want to mm-hmm. create more autonomy and control over my life. I'm going to start my own business. There's only one problem at Go. I had no idea how to start a business. <laughs> and so, and so, I, so I, was, I was in Los Angeles at the time and I was like, okay, I am going to drive to the bookstore uh, you know, Barnes and Noble bookstore at the Grove in LA. And I'm going to go to the business section. I'm going to start reading books on how to start a business. And so I did. And I went in there every day. Now, the one thing that I knew about because I had been doing it was real estate investing, right? Because when I was working on my nonprofit job, I was like, okay, I'm not going to make a lot of money working at my job because it's in the nonprofit space. You know, it's important work. I love what I'm doing. It's meaningful, but this is not going to get me rich. So, <laughs> so I just start figuring out how to do some investing. So what I ended up doing is I bought a house, I, a, a three bedroom house. I rented out bedrooms to friends of mine. You know, so I had three streams of income. The house appreciated more in one year than my entire annual salary. I was like, that's really interesting. So Where did you so, buy LA or San Francisco? Or? No, this was actually when I was in Washington, DC. Oh, um, okay. But then what I started doing is I, I was like, okay, so, so now I have some equity. Now I have some investment capital. So then I started buying rental properties in different real estate markets around the US and all that. And my friends started coming to me and they're like, hey man, they're like, how are you doing this? Like, how are you buying this real estate? Oh, well, let me show you, you know? So then I started helping my friends buy real estate. And as I was doing that, um, you know, what I realized was there were real estate brokers that were making money off of the properties that I was buying, but that was cool because I wasn't paying them, right? Mm. Because in the United States, the seller pays a hundred percent of the real estate brokerage fees. So if you're a buyer of a real, of real estate, you pay no brokerage fees. Right. So I was like, that's cool. Like they're making money, but we're not paying it. And they're making money off of my friends, but we're not paying it. So that's fine. They're adding value. So all of a sudden I understood the business model. Right. And I loved the business model of the real estate brokerage because what it meant was if I could start a real estate brokerage, I could start help. I could continue helping my friends buy real estate but I could get paid for it. Mm. And I don't have to charge my friends any money at all. I just keep helping them buy real estate and all of a sudden I get paid, but I don't have to charge them anything. I was like, I love this business model. (laughs) I don't like selling people stuff. I don't want to sell stuff. I don't want to charge people money. I want to help people do stuff and not charge them anything and get paid for it. That's the best of all worlds, right? And mm-hmm. I understood I understood the product, I understood the service, but the question was, how do I build a business around it, right? Like that's the piece that I didn't have. So what I started doing was I was going into the bookstore every day and I would read these books. And each day, this was 2007, okay? Each day I would walk in and I, the first thing I would do, I would look at the new business book section, right? And one day I walk in 2007, I look at the new business book section. It's a brand new book that just came out that day. 
It was called The Four Hour Work Week by some guy named Timothy Ferris. The and I was like, I was like, huh, what's this? Pick it up, read the back cover. I was like, oh boy, I'm reading this today. Sit down, literally read it the day it came out, right? I was like, that is what I'm doing. And so the light bulb for me that went on in that book, because I was literally in that mode where I was like, okay, how do I design a business plan? How do I build a business? And what that book really taught me was the value of location independence, the freedom of mobility, and designing a business that is not only going to make you money, which is what most business plans, that's where they stop, right? Like, how are we going to get profitable? But also, how are you going to design a business plan that is going to facilitate your lifestyle design, your total freedom of mobility, your total location independence, so that you can travel the world and do epic stuff? How do you build that business, right? So now, all of a sudden, it's like, not only how do we make money in this business, but how do we become totally location independent? So the first thing that I realized was, okay, I can't do this on my own. I don't have all the skills. I just don't have all the skills to build a business, but I know other people that have complementary skills to me, right? That are amazing mm-hmm. at stuff that I'm not good at, right? And for that matter, I'm good at stuff that they're not good at. Like we, you know, I, I know what I'm good at, I know what I'm not good at. So I recruited two business partners. One of them was my best friend uh, of many years, right? Uh, and one of them was also uh, another person who had uh, actually sold me some real estate, right? So he was in the real estate space and he actually had a real estate background, which we needed to start a brokerage, right? So we came together and founded Maverick Investor Group and the in 2007, and we've been operating on the same business model since that day, which is that we help individual regular people, right? buy cash flowing rental properties in the United States from anywhere in the US or anywhere in the world, right? And we help people to buy them in real estate markets that we consider to be investor advantaged, right? Meaning like not Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City where the prices are crazy, but prices where you can buy relatively low, rent relatively high and get a good cash flow. And so we built this business model And we built it with a totally location independent infrastructure from day one. So my business partners and I never even lived in the same city for a single day since the founding of the company. As we've hired staff, those staff can be anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. Um, And we've just forced it to be kind of built on a virtual infrastructure. And so what that did was it gave me the location independence to travel if I wanted to. Mm. Right. So now all of a sudden I have the infrastructure. I have the freedom. I'm in Los Angeles. I don't need to be in Los Angeles. I was choosing to be in Los Angeles. And I chose to be there, by the way, for my first six years of location independence. I was in a relationship there. I love the city of LA. Like it, you know, it was amazing. But I could have been anywhere. And it Mm. wasn't until 2013, right? What happened was I was in a relationship at the time, right? And my partner comes home one day. Uh, and she, so she was doing her PhD at UCLA in Egyptian history. She comes home one day and she's like, yeah, so I got to go to Cairo for a year to do my dissertation research. I was like, cool. I'm okay. <laughs> Let's go to Cairo. I'll go to Cairo for a year. Let's get it. Let's do it. So we got rid of all of our stuff. All we got rid of our, our, our place. I, I sold my car, like got rid of all our stuff, went to Cairo for a year. And then after we lived in Cairo for a year, that was, that was it. I was like, why? There's no reason to go back to LA. Like, you you got a year, year and a half to write your dissertation. You got all your stuff. Let's just go live in epic places around the world. 
So we just pulled out a world map and we were like, okay, what are our top five places we most want to live? Let's go rent an Airbnb for like two months in each place. We were like Rio de Janeiro, Cape Town, <laughs> South Africa, Barcelona, you know, and we just went, right? So that went on for about a year and a half. She and I eventually broke up and I continued traveling, continued nomading. And now it's probably been, you know, probably closer to 65 countries actually since 2013 alone. Wow. So I, I really want to dive into the business stuff in a little bit because yeah. uh, I'm going to be buying real estate soon, uh, very likely next year. And I I mean, I'm always nerding out about that stuff. So I'm very interested to dive into that and find out more about it. But I am curious about something that you mentioned, which was that you, when even though you didn't travel a lot internationally as a kid, uh, a lot of the places that you went to in the very beginning were English speaking, right? So you were going to Canada, you were hopping over there, you went to London with your dad, then you went to Ireland. They're all English speaking countries. And one of the things that I remember was the first time I went to a country that was wildly different for me, like where nobody spoke the language, nobody had the same culture as me. And that was when I went to Turkey. And I, I even though it was, I don't remember anything else from when I was eight years old, but I remember being in Istanbul in the middle of the market, the main market there in the city, and just losing my mind because I was like, what is happening? And I feel like that moment for me really showed me how big the world is. You know what I mean? Like, even though from Bulgaria, where I was living to Istanbul, it's not that big of a hop, but still just like shockingly different. So I'm curious, do you remember the first time that you went somewhere where they weren't speaking English and where the culture was a little bit different. And do you feel that has had any sort of like growth on you, like from that experience, just kind of like getting culturally shocked in that way? So the first non-English speaking place that I went, and I mean like where the primary language is not English, right? Obviously some right. people speak English, uh, was probably when I was living in Ireland and my roommate and I decided to take that one month trip through Europe. Right. So we're like, okay, we're going to start in Italy. So we just flew mm. from Dublin to Rome. And then we just jumped on, you know, we spent time in Rome and then jumped on the train and went to Florence and Venice and Milan and then up through Germany and, you know, that. So we were going through a number of different European countries. And that was the point at which, you know, you, well, let's see. I would say maybe even before that, I mean, I did go to, you know, I mean, maybe a little Spanish speaking. Uh, I, I did go down to, yeah, Mexico. I mean, there was a little bit of Spanish speaking stuff maybe before that, but let's just, let's just use the European example. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I thought that was really an amazing experience because when you don't speak the language, number one, it inspires you to learn a little bit, like at least a few words, right. Uh, mm -hmm. of the language, right. A few greetings and things like that. And then when, and then you feel empowered when you're able to communicate with people in a different language, right. If you haven't done that before. Right. And then also, you also feel like since you can't fully communicate with people, right. You start to learn other ways to kind of communicate with people and body language and smiling at people. And you start to understand the connection that you can have with people without speaking the same language. The other thing it does to you, I think, which is a really positive thing for personal growth is it sort of almost makes you feel like a child again, right? Mm. <laughs> Where like, you know, because we have as, as adults, right? We have a tendency to want to put ourselves into spaces where we are really 
skilled and talented and can feel good about our performance in that space, right? I want to put myself doing these things in this space where I'm really good and I can feel good about myself, right? Whereas when you put yourself into a place where you're just like, I have no idea how to do this. I just, you know, and other people are all doing it, you know, really well and you can't do it or whatever, then, you know, that what that it does, though, it provides for growth. And I think going and immersing yourself in countries where you don't speak the language um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's really unfamiliar. You're learning about things, right? Things mm. function differently. Things operate differently. There's different cultural dynamics. You have to learn things all the way, uh, even including the language, as you did kind of when you were a kid, right? And I think, you know, intentionally sort of injecting yourself into those types of situations, I think is a super positive growth experience for people, for sure. For me, it has been. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think also like Mark Manson did a really good job of talking about the uh, return on investment on travel, which I think is really interesting saying like, you know, like going to your first country is going to be super rewarding, but maybe going to your 30th country won't necessarily be that rewarding. So I don't think people need to travel like to a hundred countries or 50 countries to kind of have that growth. They can really just, you know, go to a few countries. And even if you do just that little bit, it can have a huge change on your perspective and, and on yourself and, and, you know, your personality and stuff like that. It's interesting because I feel like, I mean, one of the things that I've done is I've gone to a lot of very different types of countries and mm -hmm. I have learned an enormous amount of new things in the different countries that I have gone to. Right. So like in, I mean, just for example, you know, in 2019, which was of course the last year of full-time travel that I did right before the pandemic, I, spent, for example, three months in West Africa. So I spent a month in Nigeria, I spent a month in Ghana, I spent a month in Senegal. And that was, that's very different from mm. going to like Italy, you know, or like Ireland or, you know, or even like non-English speaking countries in Europe, right? It's a very different type of experience. I then went and spent a month in Russia, which was absolutely epic. I mean, it was completely amazing. I took the Trans-Siberian Railway uh, from Moscow all the way across Siberia into Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and then was like, you know, we we went through a, like a, a camel safari through the Gobi Desert and stuff. And we were actually meeting with Mongolian nomads, like real nomads, right? Like the, the OGs, OGs the yeah. originals. Yeah, man. And we were like meeting with them and we we're like, teach us how to do this lifestyle, right? You guys have been doing this for like centuries, right? So you know, so those kind of experiences, like meeting with Mongolian nomads, <laughs> like that's very different from anything that I saw in like, you know, Amsterdam or like Paris or like whatever, even though those countries spoke a different language, totally different thing, totally different from what I saw in, you know, um, you know, in Siberia, right? When I mm. went to, for example, uh, I went to Kazan in the semi-autonomous Republic of Tatarstan, right? Which is a Muslim um, uh, some autonomous republic in the middle of Russia that has these like amazing like turquoise colored mosques and this incredible like you know history of like Islam in the middle of Russia. I mean, it was just like like you learn stuff that's just amazing and extraordinary, and you meet incredible people that will just change your life. And it's just very different from if I had done all my travel in Europe, you know? So right. I love to see a lot of very different types of places around the world. And I'm just constantly learning. So like for me, when I go to new places, I'm just, some of them are as exciting as, you know, the, the earlier days of travel for sure still.
So how do you, as somebody who's actively running a business, right? Like I think people listening to this, even those who are listening, who are already location dependent, who are already nomadic, uh, you know, a lot of times, as you know, you know, we're jumping from good Wi-Fi to good Wi-Fi to good Wi-Fi to good Wi-Fi, even if it is in wildly different countries. So how have you been able to essentially be able to run a business while going to some of these other countries like West Africa, like Mongolia, that don't necessarily have the infrastructure, you know, of good Wi-Fi. So is there something that you've developed some sort of framework or something like that that allows you to kind of like, like leave or, or how exactly does that work? Yeah. So there's, I think there's a few different sort of categories of like types of work that you know, you need to do. Right. And so as if you're the business owner, you have a lot more control over this than if you're like a remote employee. Right. Or sometimes mm -hmm. if you're a freelancer. Right. So if you're a business owner, you do have more control, I think, over structuring your work and your time. So, for example, a lot of the work that I need to do, I have built it out in such a way that it's very asynchronous. OK, mm -hmm. so I can do it at the times that I'm able to do it. Right. So if I'm on different time zones, if I'm in Asia or if I'm in South America or if I'm in, you know, Africa or wherever, I can do it on my own time. And then when I need to schedule things that are at specific times, so let's say meetings with people that are in, you know, the US time zone or something like that, I have a decent amount of control over exactly when I schedule those meetings. And so if I know that, for example, I'm going to be on the Trans-Siberian Railway, <laughs> Right. And I'm going to be on a 37 hour train leg going across Siberia where there's going to be no Wi-Fi at all. I know that in advance. Right. Right. But I know that when I get to, you know, uh, Irkutsk or Novosibirsk or one of these Siberian towns that I'm then going to spend two or three days in that I know that they have a co-working space there. And I know that they have high-speed Wi-Fi there. And I know what hours the co-working space is because I've researched all this stuff in advance. Like I have mm -hmm. the itinerary set up. So I can schedule in advance my calls. Okay, this week, when can we do a call, right? Well, I'm going to be on a 37-hour train leg through Siberia on Monday and Tuesday, but I'll be at this co-working space on Wednesday. This is the time differential based on your and mine. Let's schedule the call for Wednesday at you know 6 p.m., whatever, right? So I'm able to sort of, based on my travel schedule, to structure things that I have to do at particular times around those things and then make a lot of my work asynchronous so that I can do it you know, on the train, I have a 37 hour train ride, I can't do calls, but I have my laptop, I can do tons of other stuff, I can do creative work, I can do copywriting, I can do all sorts of other things that I need to do at that time, right. So a lot of it is just thinking about, okay, what does the scope of your work entail, right? Mm. What part of your work can you do with no Wi Fi at all? What part of your work do you need Wi Fi for? What type of your work is asynchronous? And what type of your work do you need to overlap with other people's business hours? And you just sort of set it up and structure it that way. Yeah, I think the whole asynchronous concept has become very uh, important and very interesting to a lot of companies, especially I think post COVID, as a lot of companies are now, you know, starting to not only let their employees be location dependent as opposed to remote. But even, you know, the next step, which we've been talking about a lot on this podcast is what happens when a company lets their team be remote. The next step is going to be like, well, 
why should we hire Susie from Chicago when we can hire Ivan from Moscow, who's an even better person for this position, right? So asynchronous becomes a lot more important in that sort of work environment. So do you have any other specific tips about ways that you've been able to massage your work into being more asynchronous friendly? I mean, part of it is uh, reducing the amount of in-person meetings and changing that to written communications, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're communicating by email or you're doing project management using a, a, you know, a platform like Trello or you're communicating through Slack or things like that, all of that type of communication, including project management and collaboration can be done asynchronously, right? You mm -hmm. don't actually have to have a Zoom call meeting and be on with another human being. And so I think, you know, in the same way that like in office, you know, uh, in the, the, the sort of the notorious, right, like office dynamic is that you have all of these unnecessary meetings that you're required to go to and sit in and they're entirely unproductive. And you're like, dude, I could have just gotten all that like in a much quicker amount of time. We could have done it this way. We could have done it that way. Just send an email around, like whatever, right? So I think the same concept applies virtually which is that you want to think about how efficiently and how asynchronously you can reduce, you know, uh, the amount of in-person video call interactions that you need. Now, sometimes they're nice, right? Sometimes it's nice to like actually see another human being and like do that. Right. And that's great if you're getting value out of it. But what you want to do is be in control of that for you to be the one that's making those decisions, that's making those choices and not having to do it, right? So if you reduce the amount of, in-person interactions you need to have, then you can just, you know, scale asynchronously a lot more efficiently, I think. Yeah. And I think, um, like when I was in the agency world, like one of the things that really helped us become a lot more asynchronous was like developing, you know, operating procedures so that if somebody who was in a different time zone needed an answer to something like right away, they had a different way to find those answers as opposed to like, Hey, how do I do this? You know, just like desperately sending over slacks. Is that something that you guys also used? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think systems and processes are not, they're, they're important for any business, right? But I think when you're running a virtual business, it forces you to be more precise mm -hmm. in the design of systems and processes, right? The creation of those operational instructional, you know, videos or manuals or whatever they are and the training process to be very precise because you don't allow for those crutches like they knock on the door hey how do i you know that's not happening right so how can we be really precise in building these things out training people up um and then you know and then managing accordingly right so i, I think it actually improves the operational protocols when your business is virtual because it forces you to you have no other choice yeah, I, I totally agree. And speaking of kind of improving the business, I'm curious, have you guys found uh, that being location independent has given you like an edge over the competition in any way? Like, wow, I imagine there's a lot of other real estate companies who do something similar to what you do, but they're in an office, right? Because real estate kind of implies being at home in one spot. So do you feel like being location independent gives you an edge in any way? And if so, like, what is it? Yes. And we've actually explicitly built that into our business model as part of the offering and the benefit that our customers get. So for example, mm. a real estate brokerage is definitely not a traditionally virtual category, right? 
-hmm. So traditionally it's like, okay, we have an office and we drive people around to look at houses or we sit at open houses that we're trying to sell. And then, you know, that's what people think of when they think of a real estate brokerage, right? For us, we don't do any of that. We are a real estate brokerage that serves individual real estate investors exclusively. It's 100% of our customers. We don't help people buy houses to live in. We don't help people sell houses that they're moving out of. All we do is help people to buy rental properties that they want to own and hold as an investment, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that should be very clear, right? So the first part of our value proposition, okay, is that we help people buy real estate in the best markets, regardless of where they live. So the first thing is they don't have to live near it, okay? Mm. Secondly, it is turnkey real estate, meaning it's either brand new construction or it's been fully renovated already. And it has a long-term tenant in place on a lease paying rent. So it is a performing cash flowing rental property and it has a local professional property management company in place that's collecting the rent, handling the maintenance, dealing with any tenant calls. So you get all the benefits of owning the actual deeded real estate and the benefits of owning the rental property, collecting the cash flow, getting the appreciation, taking the tax benefits, but without the headaches of having to be the landlord or the rehabber and without having to take all of those upfront risks, right? So that's a core part of the value proposition. The other part and getting to the location independence piece is that we can do this in any US real estate market, okay? So most real estate brokerages are in one location and all they have access to is the properties that are in driving distance from their office. It's all they have to mm -hmm. sell. So as real estate markets go through cycles and they become more or less advantageous to continue buying in, if you're a traditional geographically restricted fixed real estate brokerage in one market, all you have to sell are these properties in your local area. So what you do is you say, okay, this is my product. And now I'm going to retrofit my marketing materials to tell people why they should buy my product. Mm -hmm. Now, no matter what happens in the market, no matter if it's good or bad to buy your product, doesn't matter. It's all you got to sell. So you're telling people they should buy it. Right. right? You got to spin the story somehow to make it good. Because it's all you have to sell. For us, we preemptively addressed that. And we said, that's not what we want to do. We want to build a business model where we're putting the customer, the client, the investor first, and we want to be able to help them buy in the most investor advantaged US real estate markets at the time that they're buying. So we want to have the latitude to help them buy in different real estate markets, right? Mm -hmm. So as real estate markets go through cycles and they become more or less advantageous to buy in, we can help our clients buy in different real estate markets and build their portfolios of cash flowing rental properties over time and across markets, right? So the location independence of our company not only benefits us, the owners and, and that kind of stuff like we're talking about, it benefits the clients because they're not restricted to buying in just one market either. And are you finding people that are coming to you specifically because of like, and I mean, I understand that for somebody like, like, let's say I want to invest in real estate. I definitely like what you guys are saying because like, for example, the Cincinnati market is down, but the Austin market is up versus, you know, the, uh, you know, St. Louis market is also doing well. So I like the idea of having working with somebody who is like understanding of that can almost consult on that. I definitely get that, but I'm curious are there people that are coming to you just because they agree or they in some way 
uh, like your location independent, your remote sort of like ethos? And like, no, I want to work with those guys because they seem cool and they seem modern. Have you seen any of that? 100%, man. I mean, we are the primary provider of rental properties in the digital nomad space, right? Mm. I mean, we have, uh, I did an entire free report, which I'm happy to offer to your audience on real estate investing for digital nomads, right? Love it. So, yeah, send yeah. that over. <laughs> yeah, I will. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. I mean, people, if they want to get it, they can just go to uh, themaverickshow.com slash nomad. Okay. And they can grab that totally free. Um, it's right there for them. So they can grab that. But, you know, we've been building this into our brand, right? The idea mm -hmm. is we've created this lifestyle. We're traveling, we're nomading, we're doing this kind of stuff. We want all of our clients to be able to, you know, build their wealth through real estate and buy these rental properties and all that kind of stuff and be able to, you know, create the life of their dreams as well, right? Maybe it's becoming a digital nomad. Maybe it's just, being able to, you know, go to all your kids' soccer games and, and, you know, do your thing, however you want to do your lifestyle, but having more control over your life, you know, so this is the whole concept. And so, especially for people that are digital nomads, right? Like, are you going to want to buy your rental properties from a company, right? That's, you know, run by digital nomads or, you know, versus like some local real estate brokerage, right? So, right. Absolutely. We're sort of doing that. I guess you could call it affinity marketing where we're mm -hmm. saying, okay, we're a nomadic company that's serving digital nomads and helping them to buy rental properties in the U S. So yeah, absolutely. I think that the, you know, that part of our brand and that part of the affinity, uh, I think is definitely uh, very powerful for sure. Yeah. I had a similar experience where, uh, I was working with an accountant for a few years and, uh, finally I had to send him some paperwork or something like that. And he was like, yeah, can you fax it to me? And I was like, I don't mean to be like the biggest millennial in the world, but I've never used a fax in my life. Can I send you this in like Google Drive or something like that? And he responded with like, uh, what's Google Drive? I don't know how to use that. And I was like, we can't work together. And I actually went and found a different accountant because I was like, this. it might seem like a small thing, but I was like, this is a sign of like a much bigger misunderstanding of like, if you don't understand Google Drive, you probably don't understand what I do. You can't help me as much. And what else is down the line that's going to make life more difficult for me? So, uh, yeah, that's I, I totally understand what people who are buying with you and working with you kind of go through. You know, it's hilarious that you mentioned that example about the CPA. I have been working with my CPA for 10 years. Never met him in person, right? Um, and so, and so, and now, and now 10 years ago or so that was like, oh my gosh, you don't, you know, but now yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah, why would you meet your accountant in person? Like, why would you ever have a need to like go to an accounting office or like this kind of stuff? So like, you know, even the personal vendors, I mean, the, you know, and the, you know, the companies that we work with on that sense, yeah, we want to work with location independent companies that are doing the same thing and all that. And of course you can do this in all of these industries. So yeah, hundred percent agree with that, man. So I'm curious because I, I mean, if I were you and I was starting this business, at least in the very beginning, I would have one really big concern, right? Is that the ideology of being a digital nomad, of being a, a you know, nomading means kind of like not owning a property, it means not having real estate. There's a lot of nomads who don't, you know, they live from Airbnb to Airbnb to Airbnb. So why should more nomads, more people who are location independent invest in property? Uh, you know, what are the pros and cons of that? Yeah, so that's a there's a very very important distinction here. Okay, mm -hmm. they should not buy a primary residence. That's okay. for sure. Okay, 
and that's what you're talking about, right? In terms of untethering and not having a primary residence where, you know, it's your house that you live in. And when you travel, you're paying for your accommodations, mm-hmm. you know, on the road, as well as double accommodations at home, or you're kind of stuck with this thing, or you have to figure out what to do with it or whatever. So we're not talking about primary residences at all. We don't help people buy houses to live in. We don't people help people sell houses they're moving out of. We don't do any of that traditional real estate brokerage stuff. All we're doing is helping people buy rental properties as an investment. These are houses right. they're never going to live in. They're never going to stay in. Most of our clients don't even see the properties in person, right? They see pictures and videos, um, but they are buying them as an investment, okay? And the reason, and, and this is like, you know, the same reason that you would invest in any type of investment. Mm-hmm. Why would you buy cryptocurrency or why would you invest in stocks or why would you invest in this? This is a particular asset class, Okay. Um, and, and the particular asset class is residential investment property in the United States specifically, right? That's what we're doing. And the benefits are numerous, okay? And I'll share a few of them with you, right? That make this particular asset class different from many others. Now, most of our clients are, you know, they diversify, they buy, you know, different types of asset classes and things like that. So we're not saying you should only buy this, but the reason why you would want to add residential investment property to your investment portfolio is because it is uniquely advantageous. So with many asset classes, you have one potential profit center, okay? Which is that you buy it and you hope and pray it goes up in value, <laughs> right? right? Like that's it. It's, I mean, it's purely speculative, right? You're like, I'm gonna buy this, whatever it may be, right? I'm gonna buy this asset and I hope and pray it goes up in value. If it does, great. Then when I sell uh, I, you know, I pay, ca- I pay taxes on my capital gain and whatever's left over is my profit, right? If it doesn't go up in value and it goes down in value, well, I'm screwed, right? <laughs> so that's literally how most people just invest, right? I mean, it's kind of like a, 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 you know, a gamble or a bet or whatever you want to call it, right? You're speculating that I think this is going to go up in value, therefore I'm going to do it, right? Or I think this is going to go down in value. I mean, if you're shorting stocks or something like that, right? But it's a, it's a, it's a, if this thing happens, then I make money, right? I'm mm-hmm. betting this is going to happen. If it doesn't make money, if it doesn't, I lose money, right? With rental property, totally different ballgame. Okay. With rental property, you have five separate profit centers that are simultaneously operating in your favor at the exact same time. And I'm going to tell you what all five of them are. But the reason why that's so significant is because it's a massive hedge against downside risk. Because if one of those profit centers doesn't go right or two of them doesn't go right, you've still got other ones that are making you money. So for example, we'll talk through this, okay? You buy a rental property. We're talking about a single family rental home, right? In a nice area. And you you have a tenant in there uh, paying you rent, okay? Your tenant's rent is gonna, first of all, cover all of your expenses. Okay, it's going to cover your property taxes. It's going to cover your insurance. It's going to cover the fee that you're paying to a professional property management company to give your tenant high quality service and manage the entire thing so you don't ever have to do any of the landlording. Mm-hmm. And it's going to cover an estimate for your maintenance and vacancy expenses, which are non fixed but inevitable in real estate. Okay, right. so, you, so after you factor all of that in, your tenant's rent is going to cover all of it. Plus, it's going to cover if you got a mortgage on your property with a principal and interest mortgage payment, it's also going to cover that. Okay. Then there's going to be money left over to go into your pocket, and that is called your 
positive cash flow, right? It's mm. your passive residual income. Okay. So the first profit center is your passive income, the money that is flowing into your pocket after all your expenses are covered every single month. And this profit center, right? This income stream is totally independent of what the real estate market does. If the housing prices go up, if they go down, if they stay the same, none of that impacts your cash flow. Your tenant pays the rent, it comes into your pocket every single month. So you now have a stream of passive residual income. That's profit center number one. The second one is that the housing market, of course, right? Market appreciation is the second potential profit center. So right now, housing markets have been going up, I mean, at incredible, yeah. <laughs> at incredible rates, okay? Now, if you're leveraging your purchase, right? So if you're only putting, if you're, in a, let's say you're an American and you can get a conventional mortgage at the best terms and all that kind of stuff, I mean, there are, you know, Americans that are buying U.S. rental properties that are only putting 20% down on your house, okay? So if you put 20% down, you know, let's say plus closing costs, right? So 20, you know, and let's just say for even numbers, you're buying a $100,000 house and you put 20 grand down to buy it, plus let's say another five grand or so closing costs, okay? And you put 25% down, but that house, let's say it goes up, you know, I mean, some of these markets that we're dealing with went up 10% or more in 2020. If you have a $100,000 house and it goes up 10%, now it's worth 110,000, right? But if you only put 20 grand down and you had a $10,000 gain, you know, I mean, it, well, you put your closing costs down too, but let's say that's a 40% <laughs> return right. just on the equity in a single year, right? So you're, so you're talking about market appreciation is one profit center, but regardless of what market appreciation does, right? Let's say next, next year, let's say, you know, the real estate market is totally flat and doesn't go up a single dollar. Okay, well, you still collected your cash flow, right? That, that right. still came in from your tenant. The other thing that's happening is your tenant's rent is covering your mortgage payment. And part of your mortgage payment is a principal pay down, okay? So even if the market stays totally flat, doesn't appreciate at all, your tenant is paying down your mortgage principal every single month. You hold that property for 30 years, your tenant will have paid off your entire mortgage. You'll own it free and clear. You built all of that equity without a single dollar of market appreciation. You don't even need the market appreciation to build equity on this model, okay? So that's your third profit center is your tenant paying down your mortgage principal. So you're building equity by principal pay down. You're building potential equity by market appreciation, right? If that continues mm -hmm. to happen. Uh, and then you've got your cash flow coming in. Your third profit center is your tax benefits, okay? Because residential investment property is the most investor advantaged asset from a tax perspective uh, that there is in the United States, the most tax advantaged asset that there is. And the reason for that is because the government wants to incentivize people to provide and offer housing to others, okay? Mm. So they don't have to do it. So they're gonna heavily incentivize you, okay? To buy a property and offer it for rent. And the way they do that is by allowing you to depreciate the value of your property, even if it's going up in value, okay? What do you mean so by depreciate? So like the expenses that you accrue or accrue or you take on to that property? It's even better than that, okay? So yes, you can write off your expenses, right? You write off your taxes and insurance and property management fees and you know your mortgage interest and all that kind of stuff. Yes, you get to write all of that off. In addition to that, Okay. So, so basically the only thing that would be, that would be taxable left over would basically be like your positive cash flow that comes into your mm -hmm. pocket 
and the amount of rent that was used to pay down your mortgage principal. That's what would normally be taxable after you've taken all of your write-offs. But what the government allows you to do is to depreciate the structural value of your property. So what they, you can't depreciate the land. So you break out the land value and then you depreciate the structure of your house over 27 and a half years. So just for totally even numbers here, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say that you determined the structure of your property to be worth $275,000. Let's just use that number. The government allows you to depreciate it over 27 and a half years. So in that example, you would have a $10,000 loss, right? It's called a phantom loss, right? Because you didn't mm -hmm. actually lose anything. Your house maybe went up in value, but they allow you to take a $10,000 loss on that $275,000 structural value of the house, which you can then use to write off the tax that would otherwise be owed on your cash flow and your principal pay down. Okay. So you save. So, so normally when you're calculating investment returns, you have what's called a before tax return, right? So like, what's the return on my money before I have to like cash out and pay the capital gains tax or whatever other, whatever else it is. Right. And then after you pay those taxes, how much you have left over, that's called your after-tax return, right? So with rental property, the tax advantages in maximizing your after-tax return is hugely advantageous compared to, to other assets where you have to pay tax on the money that you make. In some cases with rental properties, you can go years and years and years and years paying no tax on the money that you make legally by just using this appreciation benefit, right? And the other, the other piece of the tax benefit is that normally when you would sell a property, you'd have to recapture the depreciation that you took. You'd have to pay capital gains on your gain, all that kind of stuff. But the, the U.S. allows you to do what's called a 1031 exchange. That's the number of the tax code provision. A 1031 tax deferred exchange, which basically means that if you're going to sell your property down the road, and you're going to you're willing to reinvest the proceeds that you make into buying another or multiple rental properties with it you can indefinitely defer all of your capital gains and all of your depreciation recapture so you don't have to pay it as long as you're using the proceeds from the sale to buy more rental properties you can continue to do this all the way until death at which point the basis totally resets when your heirs inherit the property and nobody ever owes that tax or that depreciation uh, on the property ever, right? So It almost so, sounds like cheating a little bit. <laughs> 100% legal, but that's why I explained what's the incentive, right? right? What's the incentive for the government? Why would they do this, right? Well, because you're providing huge value because you're providing housing for the citizenry of the country, right? So they're willing to give you these extraordinary tax benefits that are more advantageous than what you're going to get buying, you know, pretty much any other type of investment. And then the final piece, okay, the final piece of the, the fifth profit center of rental property is that you can not only hedge against inflation, but you can actually profit from inflation by purchasing rental properties and using a mortgage. And I'll explain how that works. So first of all, housing prices rise with inflation. Okay. Correct. Rents, rents also rise with inflation. Okay. So you basically have an inflation adjusted asset where your home price and your rents are going to go up with inflation. So you're not going to lose money to inflation, right? Whereas if you put As your opposed money in to a, holding in the bank, for example. Yeah. You hold, you hold right. your money in the, in the bank. If you've got a 1% interest rate and inflation is going up at 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it's going up at, you're actually losing money in real dollars. 
Right. Whereas if you've got it in real estate, housing prices are rising with inflation, rents are rising with inflation. So you're keeping pace with inflation because you can renew your lease every year, raise your rents. So you're keeping pace with inflation, okay? And also if you take out a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, you are borrowing that money in today's real dollars. But the bank doesn't, be, doesn't ask to be paid back in inflation adjusted dollars. Mm -hmm. They just ask to be paid back in nominal dollars, right? So as inflation rises, you are paying the bank back in future diminished nominal dollars that are worth less than what you borrowed. So you're actually profiting from inflation. Right. Which is why so many people tried to go out and buy houses during COVID because they, you know, they dropped the, the mortgage rates down. Correct. Interest rates are very low. Yeah. Interest they've been rates, a, histor right. a historically low rate. So people are locking in those low mortgage rates. So that makes your mortgage payment lower. So you have more cash flow and you're borrowing the money. Uh, yeah. At, at incredibly low rates. And then you lock that in. Like you buy, if you get a fixed rate mortgage, it's locked in for 30 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So as the value of the dollar diminishes, you're paying the bank back in dollars that are worth less than the dollars you borrowed. You borrow in, in dollars from this year and you're paying the bank back in dollars into the future that are worth less than what you borrowed. So yeah, so those are the five profit centers that you have cranking for you, all of them at the same time. So if one of them you know, doesn't perform as much as you've expected, you've got these other ones there as well. So who is this for? I mean, you know, like I'm listening to this. This sounds great. Uh, I, I definitely get it. I'm interested in real estate. Maybe somebody also is listening to this and is like, yeah, sign me up. I want the five profit centers as well. Who is this for? Like, what do you need from a buyer or, or somebody participating to actually, you know, uh, get into this? Like how much money does somebody usually have to have in order to invest in a, in a property this way? Yeah. So these rental properties are anywhere from, you know, price point wise, like a hundred thousand dollars up to maybe if you want like brand new construction with granite countertops and like stainless steel appliances and that kind of thing, you know, properties we've got there in the, you know, 250,000 to, you know, so let's, mm -hmm. let's just call it, you know, some of them even start below a hundred thousand, but let's just call it a hundred thousand to $300,000 price point is depending on where you want to buy and what kind of asset you're looking at. So if you are someone who qualifies for a conventional mortgage in the United States, um, you know, that's going to get you the best terms, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an American resident, you've got a FICO score, you can borrow from an American bank, like all that kind of stuff. That's going to get you the absolute best terms. Most of our clients that meet those qualifications are doing this with 20% down plus closing costs. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar property, if you've got 30 grand, and you know you got a decent credit score. You know you can get in the game for that, right? For foreign nationals that are buying from other places around the world, we have private financing options, commercial financing options. Sometimes those are a little bit of a larger down payment. They might want you to put down, you know, thirty percent um, or forty percent instead of the twenty percent. You know, things of that nature. Um, but we can talk with everybody. What we do is we do a phone consultation, a video consultation with every single person. Okay. And we want to understand exactly what your personal situation is, because this is not a cookie cutter approach. It's not like, oh, this is the one thing that works exactly the same way for every single person. No, you know, for us, our entire business model is relationship based. Okay. Mm. So we want to invite every single person to come in for a consultation with us. Right. 
And then what we're going to do is understand what is your current situation? What are your investing goals? What are your buying criteria? What is your, you know, investable capital that you have right now? Like, and we want to help everybody get onto a portfolio building plan. So over time, you can continue to build a portfolio of cash flowing rental properties. We've got clients buying from us this year that have been buying for us from for 10 years, 11 years, they're still buying rental properties through us, right? So that's the kind of relationship that we want to have with everybody, understand your current situation, and then help you get into what is the right lending opportunity for you, you know, to get the right mortgage for you, or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So we, we build a very personal relationship with everybody that comes in our door. And you get paid by the seller, Correct. So if anybody works with you, they don't even pay for your services. The person selling the house to them pays for the service. It's my favorite part of the business model. <laughs> we and this is the part people can hardly believe. They're like, wait, what? I don't have to pay anything. No, our clients that buy real estate through Maverick pay us no money ever. Okay. We give them free education, information, personalized consultation, all this kind of stuff, right? We support them through the process. We connect them with the resources for getting mortgages or getting, you know, uh, setting up an entity, right? To hold their property in and getting all this stuff we provide them and they pay us nothing. We don't have to charge them anything. I don't have to sell anything to people, which I love. This is literally one of the reasons I chose this business model because as we said, in the United States, all of the, real estate brokerage fees are paid by the seller, which means that if you came in to us and you started working with us, okay, um, we would get paid when you closed on your first property, okay? At that closing, the sale price um, would, would have a fee that goes from the seller. It would be going to the seller and then it would come over to us by the seller. So we get paid on closings, which also another reason why we set it up that way and why we like that is because it puts all of the onus on us to perform. Meaning if we can't help you find a property that meets your criteria and gets all the way through your due diligence process, right? Because you're going to send in your home inspector. You're going to send in your appraiser. You're going to do all of this due diligence, okay? So it's only when I understand your buying criteria. We've helped you find a property that meets all of that. It passes your inspection. It passes your appraisal. It gets all the way through your due diligence and you close. Only then do we get paid any money at all. If we can't do that, we make nothing, okay? We make nothing. And so that really, I think, creates the right dynamic and the right financial incentive as a business for us to be able to serve our customers and have our service be a performance-based service. I love that. That really is a great business model. So um, I want to talk a little bit about real estate because uh, I do, this is something that I'm interested in. Uh, one of the things that I like to do on my quote unquote off time is to just browse listings, whether they be in the US or in other parts of the world that I enjoy. But let's talk about real estate post COVID because I think that COVID is definitely going to rock the real estate market. It already has in some ways. It's definitely affecting uh, the the non-residential real estate markets. But what are you seeing from your point of view in terms of how COVID is affecting uh, you know, the residential real estate market? Yeah. So I think it's a really important distinction that you're making between residential and non-residential, right? Because the answers are going to be very, very, very different. So, you know, with regard to commercial real estate, 
and particularly, you know, when you look at what's happening right now, right, with what COVID is doing, all of the remote virtual trends that we were seeing, like they were happening, we were watching them, right? They just got accelerated. I don't even know how many years, but a lot of years, right? By COVID, okay? So whether you're talking about, you know, shopping, you know, retail spaces now going online, whether you're talking about office spaces now becoming remote, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think there's a lot of commercial real estate that's getting hammered. We don't do any, we don't do any commercial real estate. The amazing thing about residential real estate is no matter how virtual our world becomes, people are always going to need a place to sleep and they're going to need to actually have a physical roof over their head. Like that's the one thing that can't become virtual, right? So they're always going to need that. And so what we've seen in COVID is an actually an increase in buyer demand, right? For real estate, as you were just mentioning, right? Interest rates are low, buying demand is very high, people are buying houses. So there really has not been a negative impact. There's been actually the opposite. There's been an increase in demand for residential investment property. Um, in terms of specific trends though, to pay attention to, I would say a couple things, right? The, the, the trends that COVID had that impacted the residential market is number one, people are moving out of crowded apartment buildings with shared common space areas into detached single family rental properties. Okay. So that not I, as many apartment buildings, more like single family, like, like houses, even if they're further out of the city kind of thing. Yeah. And especially if they're further out of the city, right? Because mm -hmm. what I think that the general COVID trend was, is that people want to get into more sparsely populated areas uh, as opposed to being crammed into like urban, you know, crowded urban centers and people want to get into those detached single family homes where they're not sharing elevators and laundry rooms and railings on the stairs with other people, right? Like that was one of the trends I think that came out of COVID. And so a lot of the, you know, and, and which is exactly what we've been offering in terms of detached single family rental properties in nice, you know, suburban areas and things like that. And so there's been both a buying demand and a rental demand for that. So I think that's one of the, uh, one of the things that, that is definitely happening with COVID. Yeah. And I think also like, you know, I, it's so I, this sounds kind of bad because COVID was obviously uh, a terrible event, but one of the really interesting things that happened with it was that uh, I started this podcast before COVID, obviously, and a lot of the things that we were talking about happening in the next 10 years or so, COVID came around and all the things that we were talking about happening in 10 years happened in a year in some cases or are going to happen in much shorter timelines now because COVID just accelerated all of these trends. So, I mean, we've always been talking about how, you know, once you start working remotely, not only can you go work abroad, but if you want to stay in the U.S., you can go work in, you know, another city that is, you know, uh, offers more to you. And especially with like, you know, things like uh, the, the Wi-Fi that Elon Musk is putting together is kind of enabling all of those things. So are there some markets that you saw that, uh, you know, are particularly interesting to you? So I know that one of the things that you were saying was that you guys at Maverick Group kind of identify quote unquote hot markets. Are there any markets that were, uh, that are interesting to you right now? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's really interesting what you said about sort of the domestic version inside the U.S. of the nomading, right? Um, and how some of these remote workers are doing some of the same things that the international nomads are doing, right? Which is that a they're doing kind of the geographic arbitrage, where you know you make a New York City salary. I mean, I know I have friends of mine that are nomads. You know, they're lawyers. Uh, I mean, they have done some of the international stuff there in the U.S. right now. They're lawyers that work for a New York City law firm, and they're living in Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, so you're you're arbitraging a New York City income with a Kansas City cost of living. The other thing people are doing is similar to what retirees are doing, right? Is they're saying, okay, if I can be anywhere and I can work from anywhere, like I'm going to choose amazing weather. I'm going to choose this. So they're going down to different places in Florida, or they're going to, you know, that kind of those kind of spots, right? So Absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, in terms of the types of markets that we're looking at, we have just done, um, we just recently did a buying opportunity um, event in virtually, right? We do, we do webinars. I mean, people can come on and learn about the markets that we're, that we have. And we talk about, you know, what the investor advantages are of this market and they meet the uh, provider that's selling the properties, right? And they understand the property management solution, like the whole thing, right? We do, we answer mm. Q&A on there and then people can um, can reserve their properties, right? And then they can start the due diligence process, right? So we just recently did one in, in Southwest Florida and it's remarkable because they were saying, they're like, listen, I mean, one of the biggest trends right now uh, is people just moving to Southwest Florida because it's way less expensive than Miami or those kind of spots. And the weather's amazing and the lifestyle is amazing, but the cost of living is low. So there's all these remote workers moving in, right? In addition to retirees moving in and that kind of stuff. So we're definitely on top of those trends, you know, and then there's of course, you know, Midwestern, a lot of these Midwestern markets, which as I mentioned, my friend living in Kansas city or people living in some of these other markets, which are really cool cities, but they just have a much lower cost of living. And the, the real estate dynamic there is that you can buy much lower and rent higher so you're really optimizing your cash flow because you're not paying like the prices that you would pay in these like huge kind of like marquee markets, right? But yet you're in a cool city that people want to be in, right? So those are the types of investor advantage dynamics. And each time we do a webinar presentation, like on our website um, of Maverick Investor Group, we have different real estate property markets there that you can go and look at and you can watch recorded webinars and explain to you, you know, what's the advantages about this market. It might be like this market is, you know, a new construction opportunity in Florida at this higher price point. And this is the advantage to that versus this is a buying opportunity in say, you know, Kansas city or some Midwestern market. And this is the opportunity, the, the opportunity advantage of that. And that's also part of what we consult with about people in terms of what for you is going to be the best fit for your personal criteria, you know, in terms of where to start. Yeah, I think that there's some, and I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I think there's quite a few cities in that Midwestern part of the country that have really gone through like renaissances over the last, you know, say 10, 15 years. And I keep being very pleasantly surprised by going to some of these cities that I just, I mean, I've honestly never really thought about. And then I show up and I'm like, oh, this is like a, I mean, cool city. Like, I mean, there can be like a point made that I wouldn't hate living here for a little bit. You know what I mean? So I can definitely see some of these Midwestern cities really uh, uh, profiting or really um, kind of growing off of COVID, you know, as opposed to like the San Francisco, LA's, New York's, Boston, so on and so forth. 100%. Yeah, totally agreed. So I'm curious, you know, 
you guys have obviously been working remotely for quite a while. You guys have been a location-independent company from the very beginning, like you mentioned. But are there any new developments or softwares or methodologies that you guys have started using in the company recently that have you excited? You know, it's it's interesting, and it was hilarious when you mentioned the um, the faxing situation with your with your CPA because literally, like back when we started. Maverick in 2007 as a fully remote company, right? In 07, the software we were using back then was literally like, there was literally a company called eFax, okay? <laughs> and, and we were so excited about it because this allowed you to send a fax to somebody's fax machine from your computer virtually, right? So we would scan, I had like a scanner, you know, and I would scan in the document, uh, to the computer, and then I would send it through eFax into somebody's fax machine, and we're like, "This is the future, man!" Like, <laughs> game changer, you know, yeah. like this is a game changer, man. This is amazing, right? So, you know, from and they had, there were like multiple companies that were competing in that space at the time, right? Like, oh, should we use eFax or MyFax or like, you know, I mean, it was like, right? But then, yeah, you have all of this stuff evolve. And so, you know, I think the, the evolution of Slack was really significant. Um, you have obviously the, the continual evolution of, of CRM, client relation management systems for your database. We use one called Infusionsoft. Um, you know, the evolution of project management software, we use Trello. You know, there's a number of companies that compete in these spaces. But yeah, I mean, I think it's been, it's been really kind of cool to see that. And I think, you know, as long as you have a great CRM that you're happy with um, uh, to manage your data and, you know, do your sort of email sequences and automations and things like that, and you have a good project management software platform where your team can all log in and get involved and collaborate, and then you have, you know, the communication platform where you can do that text communication, right, if that's Slack or whatever it is, and kind of organize those communication flows. I think those are really sort of the core elements of how to structure it. It doesn't have to be overly complicated, right? Like those are really the three pieces. How are you going to communicate? How are you going to project manage? And how are you going to organize, you know, your, your data and your client communications, right? So those are really the three pieces that I would encourage people to not just overcomplicate and think that you have to get every single new thing that comes out because you don't, right? You have to get stuff that works for you and don't make it too complex. Yeah, it's funny that you say about, you know, being simple because like with some of the consulting that I've done with companies, it's usually like they get really excited and they overcomplicate and usually like, guys, we just really need to bring this down. Like, you know, like your tech stack is like way too big and we need to bring it down. And like a lot of these things like overlap in a lot of places, like let's like reduce the variables. And usually that just improves things a lot. So I definitely agree is like, don't overcomplicate things too much. Like, you know, usually the simpler is better. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I am curious though, because you know, you mentioned that you guys started in 07, right? So you guys got launched in 07, you've been location independent, you know, roughly the whole time you, 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 you said you started traveling in 2013. So you've kind of been plugged into the space the last 10 years, right? Like, you know, for our work, we came out in 07 it got fixed up in, you know, 09 and a lot have, has changed from 09 to 2020, right? It's been like roughly 10, 11 years. I'm curious, you having been plugged into this since the beginning, let's say, and having gone through this, you know, evolution over the last 10, 13 years, where do you think the next 10, 13 years of this are going to take us? And what is life going to look like for us at that point? 
So what specifically are you asking? Like the digital nomad lifestyle? Like or... location dependence, remote work, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, how the space has evolved, as you mentioned. Like I started traveling in 2013, okay? I was, at the time in 2013, I was just so enthralled that Airbnb and Uber existed. These, these platforms blew my mind, okay? Because prior to Airbnb existing, your choices were literally to either like rent an apartment for like a year <laughs> or you know maybe maybe you could do it for like i don't know 6 months or something um, or you had to stay in a hotel if you wanted to do like a specific number of nights so the the concept of i can go to any city in the world and rent a fully furnished place for exactly 41 nights i was mind blowing i mean this was this was this absolutely changed the entire game right it was crazy, right? And then the same thing with Uber, right? It's like, wait, you're telling me that I can go to a country, I don't speak the language, I don't have to speak the language, I just summon a, a car and it knows where I want to go based on the app and it just takes me and drops me at my door, like that's insane, right? So, so like in 2013, like these kind of innovations were game changing in the travel space. But what's happened since then um, is that a number of different companies have been coming into the space, which has been amazing to see, and they have been innovating and problem solving for the challenges of the digital nomad lifestyle, right? One of which, for example, is loneliness, social isolation, all that, right? And so it was like, you know, for me, I was, um, you know, in, in my going back to my story, what I was telling you is that with my relationship partner, she and I traveled the world for probably, I mean, including our stay in Egypt, which was almost a year plus the traveling we did after that, it probably ended up being pretty close to three years that we traveled together full time. And then when we broke up in summer of 2016, I felt so isolated. I felt so isolated because I had just been traveling with one person. We'd been very itinerant. And to be honest, like we weren't making that much of an effort to really connect socially with, you know, communities and the places we were. It was just like, okay, we have each other. So like, let's just like crank out all of our work. And then like, we'll just go out to dinner together, you know, or something like that. And you just got to like fall into that. Right. So like when we broke up, I was just like, holy cow, like I'm really freaking isolated. Like, you know, I need a community of people. Like I need to go and, you know, and find a community so I can either move to a city somewhere and like do the traditional try to build a community or something or what I actually uh, did by that time which was not available in 2013 when I started but by the summer of 2016 uh, there's a work travel program called remote year which I had heard about and the idea is that they take a group of like 40 people that are all location independent and they you go around the world together for an entire year and you just travel as a community live in a different city every month on four continents for 12 months but it's the same group of people the entire year you just move together uh, as a community i was like that's exactly what i need it's going to allow me to keep traveling and it's going to give me the built-in community that i need so i did remote year for a year and then after that i started plugging into other work travel programs like hacker paradise you know and and all of these where you can just go to a city that you've never been to before 
and there's a community of you know 30 40 people that are just there they know you're coming they want to meet you they want to hang out with you they want to explore the city with you and you've got people right you've got people to get hugs from and to do fun stuff with and like you know all of that and so you know those types of work travel programs i think really started to you know, seriously contribute to problem solving in the space. And then all of these other companies have started coming in and you know, designing these things and improving what they're doing and taking feedback from their customers and iterating, right? And developing. And so a lot of these programs now, this started back in 2014, 2015 or so, the place where they are now is a totally different level, right? Because they've iterated and, and made mistakes and taken feedback and built and grown and all that. So I, I'm just really excited at the opportunities for people to, I think over the next 10 years, be able to travel in ways that are sustainable and you know that you can really sustain a long-term world travel lifestyle and that there's an incentive for companies and businesses and entrepreneurs to innovate and design ways that make that more accessible to more people. Yeah. And I think like a lot of co-working spaces now have also almost like uh, gone into that area a little bit because like, you know, there's some co-working spaces that are like, Hey, we just co-work and like, this is all we do. And they don't really put any effort into that. But I've seen a lot of co-working spaces that are putting more and more effort, not just into the, we have great Wi-Fi and comfortable seating, but like, we're actually here to help you facilitate that community when you get somewhere as well. So Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think the co-living and the co-working and the, you know, there's all of these different options where, you know, the, the other model, instead of a, a, a roving community like remote year, that's actually mm -hmm. traveling the world together are these co-living spaces. Right. Uh, and all different companies like Outsite and Selena and all these different companies that are coming up um, and they're creating a co-living space where you can go and stay in one city for as long as you want. Maybe you wanna stay there for three months, four months, five months, um, and you can be in a co-living environment where there is intentional social interaction and you know networking and opportunity to do cool stuff and meet people for people that don't wanna be as itinerant. So they wanna travel slower and you have more control over that. So there's a lot of the, that's why I say like, you know, you see one model and somebody's like, okay, that's cool. But like, what if somebody wants to do it more this way? I'm going to build a business that does it more this way, or that does that, or that does this. And so that's why it's so cool that there's all these iterations and innovations and variations and stuff. And I just, I think the options are just getting so much greater to enable more people to do this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And even on like the real estate rental area, like, you know, you're saying how game-changing Airbnb was, you know, now we have things like NomadX and Flatio that are like, hey, you don't want to stay for, you know, 41 nights. You want to stay here for three months? Well, come over with us and we'll get you an even better deal and even a better setup. So I, I totally agree. It's going to be really interesting to see how those like uh, those fields develop over the next couple of years. But Matt, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, this was a, a total blast. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, let people know if uh, anybody's listening, heard your story, heard what you guys do over at Maverick Investment Group, uh, where can they find out more about those services that you talked about? And where can they maybe jump on one of those webinars that sounded so cool so they can find out some more about those opportunities? Definitely. So let me give a few ways for people to, to connect with me and check out some of the stuff that we're up to. So first of all, yeah, maverickinvestorgroup.com is our website. I also host the Maverick Show podcast, 
where I interview other location-independent entrepreneurs and world travelers, super interesting people, right? That are just really, you know, building very interesting businesses, having epic world travel adventures. I mean, my average guest I've now done, um, I've been doing this every week since 2018, and my average guest has definitely been to over 40 countries. And, you know, so they have interesting travel stories to tell. They have, you know, and then I, I pull out sort of the business tactics for how did they build their business or do their thing. Uh, and many of them are also like mine in spaces that are not traditionally virtual and all of that. So you'll meet amazing people if you want to check out The Maverick Show. Uh, you can and just to say, um, I, from one podcaster to another, I totally recommend people go over there and listen to the show because it is great. I think you find some really interesting guests. So I, I definitely highly recommend the podcast. So if you're listening and you haven't checked out uh, Matt's podcast, definitely go and check that out. Definitely, man. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And and for folks that are interested in, uh, you can also just go directly to the website. It's just themaverickshow.com. And if you're interested in that free report that we mentioned um, on real estate investing for digital nomads, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. And if you want to come in directly for a free video consultation with us to talk about the real estate investing stuff, which we'd love to meet you and get to know you in person, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And that'll just take you directly in where you can register and pick a time uh, that's convenient for you uh, and jump on that. And then, as I mentioned, uh, maverickinvestorgroup.com, that's actually our real estate investing website. You can go there and check out the different markets and the different webinars and stuff like that. Um, and then if you want to connect with me personally, Instagram is probably the best way. You can follow me on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. And you can just send me a direct message on there. Uh, just shoot me a DM and I would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear, you know, what you thought about this podcast episode and then, you know, any questions I can answer for you or uh, however I can support you. We'd love to uh, meet folks. Perfect. Well, I'm going to have all those links over the show notes. So uh, if you missed uh, those links, don't feel like you need to remember them. Just head over to the show notes. You can find them there. But Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to maybe meeting up someplace and uh, getting a beer. I'd love to, brother. That would be great. Thanks for having me.